This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Veronica Madback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of the East TraumaCast series. I'm your moderator, Faraz Mavek. I'm an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Florida in Jacksonville, alongside Dr. Matt Martin, who is co-moderating today. Dr. Martin is a acute care surgeon and a trauma medical director at the Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Happy to be here. We're going to discuss contemporary management of esophageal trauma, esophageal perforation, is a critical and potentially life-threatening event with considerable morbidity and mortality. And the management tends to be controversial, requires a very thoughtful and individualized approach. We're really honored and excited to have um, truly legends of American surgery join us for the discussion today. Both of them need no introduction. First guest is Dr. Dave Richardson. Dr. Richardson is a 1970 graduate of the University of Kentucky College of Medicine. He completed residencies in general thoracic surgery at UK and at the University of Texas in San Antonio. He's past president of the American College of Surgeons and has served as former director of the chair of the American Board of Surgery, president of the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, president of the Southeastern Surgical Congress, and president of the Western Surgical Association. He's currently professor and vice chair of surgery of the Hiram Polk Department of Surgery at the University of Lowell School of Medicine, and has served as chief surgery and service and director of emergency surgical services at the University of Louisville Hospital since 2005. So welcome, Dr. Richardson. Thank you so much. I'm honored, honored to participate. And our second guest is Dr. Roxy Albrecht. Dr. Albrecht is a professor of surgery at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine in Oklahoma City and a trauma medical director there. She graduated from the University of Iowa College of Medicine and finished her training at the Michigan State University, then went on for a fellowship at Jackson Memorial in Miami in surgical critical care. She is heavily involved both regionally and nationally in the Committee on Trauma and is past president of the Midwestern Surgical Association and is currently the president of the Western Trauma Association. Dr. Albrecht was co-author of the article entitled Critical Decisions in Trauma, Diagnosis and Management of Esophageal Injuries, 2015 Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, Volume 79, Number 6. Thank you both for taking the time to be with us. Uh, thank you for us. Very honored to be on this uh, podcast. Absolutely. So, Dr. Albert, let's start with you. Uh, this is undoubtedly a very challenging clinical problem that carries uh, high morbidity. What is it about the esophagus that just makes it a difficult problem? Is it, you know, anatomic or technical factors, or is it simply just a low incidence that, or lacks some experience in dealing with it? I think it's all of those uh, that you mentioned. I think one is the uh, first and foremost is the low incidence in that we don't deal with this uh, a lot, either in penetrating or blunt trauma. Uh, second is if they do get to the hospital, they're, you know, the mortality is low, but the morbidity is very high with these injuries uh, due to the both associated injuries with them as well as the uh you know, dealing with the esophagus itself and the high uh, leak rate that occurs with the repair of esophageal injuries from the neck down to the EG junction. So, uh, Dr. Richardson, you know, early studies basically showed us that um, an interval of greater than 24 hours historically was associated with worse outcomes. And we've always been trained that, 
Yeah, there's an emphasis on the time to intervention. Does that still matter in terms of management? I think so. I'm actually just been part of a of an international study uh, which examined that that uh, observation or those observations on on timing of treatment. There's no question that delay in treatment increases both uh, both morbidity and and potential mortality. Uh, while the death rate may be low, uh, there's significant uh, I think significant uh, problems with with delay. If you think about why this is challenging, I, I always use the analogy that the two organ, organs that I always find the most challenging to deal with in terms of, I call them unforgiving organs, are the pancreas and, and the esophagus. The esophagus doesn't have a serosa, so it's not really, you know, when you're sewing to, to things, especially when there's any degree of inflammation or mediastinitis, it gets to be real pro, a real problem. And then in the esophagus, in the thoracic esophagus, it's, it's, the exposure is very difficult, uh, uh, in terms of morbidity for sure, in terms of, of thoracotomy or thoracoscopy or however, however you want to tackle those. But generally, I think it requires an open approach if you're going to do it, do it operatively. So I think that plus the, the factors that Dr. Albrecht mentioned all tend to uh, lead to the fact that, that these are not something that a lot of surgeons are comfortable dealing with. Uh, if you're not, if you're not comfortable dealing with elective esophageal problems, which which many people are not because they just don't don't have that kind of experience. That's not their practice. Then trying to deal with it as an emergency, I think, becomes even more problematic. Yeah, I certainly agree. You know, I've been uh, here at Oklahoma for 17 years now, and we probably see oh, two of these uh, types of injuries each year. Uh, at a not as busy a trauma center as Oval, but uh, you know, for one individual to have experience uh, in this is just uh, um, not going to happen at this in this day and age. So, you know, to to be able to uh, deal with these types of um, complications in the other realms in emergency general surgery, as well as assisting in the care of patients that have had complicated esophageal. Um, resections and the complications of that on the thoracic team, um, I think, benefits people who do both surgical critical care and emergency general surgery as part of their trauma uh, practice. It just you get, you know, it's not it's the surgery; it's that aftercare that uh, really um, forebodes their um, survival rates to to deal with the things that happen after this the initial injury. For people doing acute care surgery, to me, a much more likely problem that they're going to encounter is a metagenic rupture of Borhoff syndrome, where we see, because of the referral nature of our of our practice, we'll see probably a half a dozen or so of those every year, maybe more. And uh, and with penetrating trauma, with the increased high velocity weaponry and and whatnot. The way the esophagus is situated, it's very, very difficult to uh, to see a thoracic trauma uh, for thoracic injury to the esophagus that arrives alive. I mean, they're, they're really pretty sporadic. Now, the neck's a different issue. Mm -hmm. uh, stab wounds and whatnot on the neck are, are, are much more, you know, we, we'll see several of those a year. Occasional gunshot wound, but certainly stab wounds or or other uh, other type of injuries due to farming or whatnot. We're, Impalement injuries in the neck and, and, and whatnot, but uh, esophageal gunshot wounds or penetrating trauma is extraordinarily unusual, uh, just because the aorta is there and, and other other big vessels. Uh, 
around it. So that's a problem the heart, but not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I haven't dealt with um, a thoracic esophageal injury for at least three or four years, and the ones that we did deal with with uh, were low-velocity gunshot wounds, uh, uh, 22s. Uh, you know, we still have a few kids out hunting with uh, small-velocity uh, rifles nowadays uh, in Oklahoma, but yeah. Uh, the remainder of them, if it's a transthoracic uh, gunshot wound, they don't make it to the hospital or die soon after they get here. Right. Mm-hmm. What about diagnosis? Dr. Richardson mentioned the cervical esophagus. Most centers really are using uh, CTA mm-hmm. now, this initial screening modality for penetrating neck trauma, uh, you know, in the absence of heart signs mandating exploration. In the stable patients, say, with the potential transmediastinal trajectory, what are you guys doing in your centers, you know, CTA the chest, as the WTA guidelines suggest, or the, the more traditional contrast esophagram? I think we tend to do often oral contrast and try to time that right as well as as uh, contrast for, for a CTA. Uh, sometimes that doesn't work. I think you do still need a high index of suspicion, and, and sometimes those patients may need more than one study. Uh, to, to rule out because I think I think missing that diagnosis is a, is a real problem, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know so so we're occasionally we might do 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 more than one thing. It'd be pretty unusual, I think, generally to do an, to do esophagoscopy or, or EGD uh, for a variety of reasons. Sometimes I think that's that actually could be contraindicated depending on the situation. But every now and then that'll be done as well. But, but only only if there's a high index of suspicion and a lack of a diagnosis on on the imaging or, or suspicion, but not confirmation. I guess would be the right way to say it. I think similar in our stable patients, we have a tendency to uh, for both cervical and thoracic is to do a uh, for cervical a CTA alone then followed by a uh, swallow, and then for thoracic, a CTA with some uh, oral contrast, if we have the ability to do that, if they are intubated, then uh, bringing back the uh, NG tube and injecting uh, during that. So during the scout process, you can bring the NG tube back and you can inject some contrast into the esophagus to give you a better kind of CT esophagram at that point in time. Um, we will, if they are intubated and it is thoracic and we don't have, didn't have the ability to do the CT esophagram, uh, we do have a tendency to, um, then, uh, perform, uh, EGD. Um, we, you know, you have to have experience with that and we, um, do a number of EGDs in our practice, both in emergency general surgery and in trauma and, uh, will, also, uh, if these patients have a chest tube in, it's a good thing to, while you're doing your EGD, to watch the, the chest tube to see if you have bubbles coming out of that to increase your um, ability to see these. It's, you know, I think multimodalities is the way to go because, as Dr. Richardson has expressed, is you don't want to miss these and you don't want to miss them for very long. So if you don't have a good CT, you don't have a good esophagoscopy, then uh, Proceed with the esophagram to do uh, to do your best to diagnose them as rapidly as possible. I think our approach would be virtually identical. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
How about you, Matt, in your center? Do you have a protocol? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's important to understand, you know, CT is, is now our go-to for trauma. You know, wherever you are, that's going to be the study you can get the fastest and easiest. I, I just think the, the key point, and I agree with what, what everyone has said, is think of it as a screening study and know what you're looking for. And, you know, for example, when the resident says, well, there was no contrast extrab, so the esophagus is good, you have to understand that you need to look for secondary signs because you won't always see extravasation. And for penetrating trauma, you also really want to try and recreate the tract as much as possible. And so tract recreated and clearly goes nowhere near the esophagus is very different than you've, you've recreated the tract and it's in proximity to the esophagus and you've got a couple air bubbles outside. That's the person that needs further workup and chasing that down. Right. Yep. One of the most difficult ones, I think, is the blunt. You know, we're talking penetrating, but I think the uh, the blunt injuries. You know, the the yield of all these tests is so much lower because there's so much. You know, if you pop a bleb into the mediastinum or uh, have a pneumothorax, you you know, have, there's a number of patients that have air around the esophagus. So, you know, we do a lot of negative studies in those those patients, but I think it's well worth the, the negative studies. Yeah, I was going to say, particularly with, you know, water-soluble contrast, that's kind of a time-honored question, which, which contrast you would use, water-soluble versus barium, that, the water cell intensity extracts in only about you know fifty percent and maybe eighty percent of thoracic perforation, so there is a significant false negative uh, rate. And the other thing people don't talk a lot about is uh, you know, and I'm always uh, concerned for it is the uh, aspiration of the water soluble. However, you know, I've seen patients develop severe pneumonitis and uh, uh, develop ARDS type of picture from aspiration of that. There are some institutions that use some of the um, intravenous type or the same contrast that you use for uh, renograms or um, to do their studies with, which has a less uh, pneumonitis rate but may still show you a significant leak. But, again, yeah, you need to follow it up with a thin barium because uh, you'll pick up, you know, you're right with the statistics. I think it's anywhere from 20 to 50% more of them. Now, in terms of uh, management, you know, the mainstay has been surgical therapy. As we've discussed, the management kind of has evolved from routine diversion to resection to primary repair, and then more recently stenting, although not in trauma, you know, maybe on the horizon. We'll touch on that later. Um, is there a role for non-operative management in the contained leak, Dr. Richardson? Well, <laughs> I think it depends on what you call contained. For For... Trauma patients, I'd, uh, I don't remember ever ever having a, a patient that had any significant extravasation that, that we've not operated on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, if you're doing, I mean, I've written a fair bit about the different uh, the broad spectrum of, of, of things that cause esophageal leaks. For example, if, you, if you're doing dilatation of a stricture, and, you know, patient complains of a little bit of pain or something that's a little bit, you know, abnormal about that. They're a little tachycardic post, post-procedure or something like that. Uh, I don't think we see as many of those as we used to, but, but still do some. And they can be very challenging when, when we, when you encounter those. Then if you do a swallow study, and, and we, we prefer thin barium. I, I think for, in the esophagus, it's a much better study. I think the risk of it are overrated. Uh, 
and and to as Dr. Albrecht stated, uh, you know, you aspirate that 1,200 uh, you know uh, water soluble contrast, and you you know you could die from from tremendous pneumonia or ARDS or whatnot very quickly. So uh, I think that's a, a that's a thin barium. I think is a better way to go. But if you if the things are really contained within the wall of the esophagus or very very close to it, no free extravasation, then I think that I think that that that's a patient you could consider. The problem I've had with 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 doing that, though, is I've seen some people do that, and where they call it contained, and and to me it's in what's contained is is the is the mediastinal pleura, and and it's not freely extravasating out into the chest. But it, but it's well outside the the wall of the esophagus, and then what you get is a ripporoid mediastinitis that dissects up and down, and it never leaks out into the chest necessarily. So uh, I think that's a uh, I think I think one's got to be very careful about what they call containment. So what I call containment is a very small little thing, almost with almost an intramural kind of uh, of leak. Uh, what other, I've seen others call containment, you know, something that's a quarter size of contrast outside the wall of the esophagus. But because it doesn't go out into the free pearl space, uh, doesn't really mean it's contained. It, it's, what's contained is that mediastinal pleura, uh, that, that surrounds the, uh, surrounds the esophagus and, and, uh, and you can get tremendous mediastinitis, you know, that, that goes up and down the entire length of the esophagus. So, I, I think you've got to be a little little careful about 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 that. Yeah, I, I you know I don't have the experience that Dr. Richardson does, but I uh, truly am a believer of what he's saying. You know, when we talk in trauma, it's just a totally different mechanism of what they were talking about in monitoring these patients with contained leaks. I think when we give them on the boards and we talk about them in conferences, it's truly due to some sort of instrumentation, not blunt, uh, high-velocity blunt trauma or penetrating trauma. Uh, it's a tear of the wall or whatever from internally, externally, and, and it could be intramural. But you know, we have a tendency to uh, operate on any sizable leak because of what he's saying is the mediastinitis. At least get a drain in there to try to control the leak. So let's um, kind of subcategorize into three groups. Again, the cervical, thoracic, uh, abdominal injuries in terms of management. In the cervical esophageal injuries, if you're operating for a cervical injury, can you kind of take us through your approach or how to do it and particularly how you evaluate the contralateral side, whether with endoscopy or methane blue, and then as of uh, exposure, you make another anterior sternocleidomastoid incision or collar incision and kind of the technical tips and tricks that you can share with us. Sure. I'm, I, you know, I have a tendency to go on the side of the wound. I don't always go on the left side. So if it's a right-sided uh, injury, I start out on the right side. Uh, I isolate the uh, area of injury, and I have uh, attend, I evaluate our both the injury and the anastomosis with endoscopy because that's uh, I've trained in it and done a lot of endoscopy over my years uh, of training and uh, evaluate the uh, opposite side with that. And that's whether it's a gunshot wound versus a, a stab wound. And I might back up. If, if there is a small uh, contained cervical esophageal leak, um, you know, in the hypopharynx, 
yeah, I may, you know, may uh, non-operatively manage mm -hmm. that, but not the, the distal esophagus. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, the, the key, I, I also think you, you go on the, you go where the money is, I mean, which is, as opposed to just a, 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 a rote procedure of doing a, a, a left collar or left, uh, anterior cervical, uh, Incision along the sternocleidomastoid. I'd, I'd go on the side of the injury. I'd try to isolate that. And, and, and I try to actually mobilize the esophagus if I can in some way. I mean, you know, usually if you, if you know what you're doing, have some familiarity with that area, you can get a little pin rose maybe around it and actually evaluate the other side. I think, I think using endoscopy is fine, uh, as a way to do that. To me, the key, the principle that I believe that every esophageal wound ought to have is it ought to be covered with something. And uh, I believe that everything should be buttressed in, in the esophagus. So I think in the cervical esophagus, if you've got a wound you can, that you can close, that's fine. If, if I've seen big blowout holes uh, that from, I've seen a couple of blood trauma because I'm old and I've seen a lot of stuff. Uh, I've seen a couple of blowout esophageal wounds and, 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 from blood trauma uh, that that were delayed, diagnosed, and, and you've got a big gaping hole. And and the thing that I think people don't don't remember is is, is that if you use a good, well vascularized piece of muscle, uh, similar to the 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 procedure of doing like a bacangian flap or something for for laryngectomy, it's amazing what you could do. You don't have to sew holes closed necessarily. Especially if they're delayed uh, a little bit, you can you can close those things over often by an over overlay overlay patch or a buttress of, of muscle in particular, and and I like to use muscle wherever I can, and there's only a couple places along the esophagus that you can't, um, and so I I actually take down part of the head of a sternocleidomastoid, and then just just use that over the suture repair if I'm able to do a suture repair primarily. Or over the hole if I'm not, because I think I think I think the thing of just draining is is fundamentally wrong, uh, or or doing a tenuous repair and not doing anything else because the leak rate's going to be substantially high, and 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 often if you get a little infection or uh, cervical abscess or whatnot, I mean those can those can often be drained fairly straightforward in a straightforward fashion, but I've seen patients. Uh, Develop esophageal strictures that are that really are problematic by attempting to close something primarily that that really isn't meant to be closed just because of you know loss of of circumference uh, you know and, and and whatnot and I'm amazed at what you can do with an you know with an overlay flap of, of muscle sternocleidomastoid in the neck particularly. Yeah, everybody talks about using some of the strap muscles, and they just seem to pale in comparison to the wound sometimes. And uh, the ones I've been involved with, uh, similar to what Dr. Richardson is saying, is we've always uh, mobilized the sternocleidomastoid to put over that. And if we can't close it transversely to not narrow the the, the wound, it's exactly it's kind of like a cirrhosal patch in the uh, yeah. abdomen, but using muscle for it. And I found that works very well. I had a patient who had a 357 wound of the esophagus, and uh, it, the case didn't turn out well because she nailed her, her, her got 
had a laryngeal wound associated with it and ended up with uh, bilateral uh, nerve palsy, which the wound caused. But but at any rate, we were able to use, and there was no way you could ever close this. Uh, so uh, we ended up using an onlay uh, sternocleidomastoid flap. We, we closed it over. I'm, I'm gesturing with my hands here, which is sort of silly because <laughs> you know, I can see it. But uh, but we closed the the uh, left side, which is the side of the entrance, and then flapped it all the way around, closed on the right side. You got a little leak uh, for a couple of days, which which closed and sealed. And she was able to uh, to eat. I mean, the, the I mean, she had problems with 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 continued aspiration because of some of the uh, other neurological issues uh, associated with with the nerve injuries. But but. Uh, uh, I'm amazed at what you can accomplish, and, and even more so in, in the distal, the dis, some of the distal esophageal wounds and, and other problems I've treated uh, with with muscle flaps. Uh, and we forget that sometimes. So about the um, so the sick patient now, the uh, patient with floor mediastinal sepsis, unstable. What kind of damage control options, if you will, would you consider using uh, T2s, or would you still actually go for exclusion and diversion? I think what you're describing would be a diversion, so a cervical esophagoscopy and uh, and diverting them. Uh, I have not put in a tube in my experience. I'd like to hear Dr. Richardson's uh, experience on use of T-tubes. Never done it. See, I think the cervical, the, the, the traditional urschel, uh, I know I'll, I'll confuse young people when you talk about it, about names of, of people who describe classic operations, but a guy named Harold Urschel, uh, working in Dallas, described uh, esophageal exclusion and diversion was the term he used, which I thought was a horrible operation. Uh, you basically, I mean, he did a bunch of them, which clearly, uh, to me, they, I mean, I'm not, he's passed away now, but I had this debate with him several times at different different meetings uh, when I was younger um, and, and, and all, but I mean, to me, I do a cervical esophagoscopy only if I think the patient's going to die of sepsis uh, in some acute kind of kind of way, uh, because otherwise, uh, you, you're creating a horrible disease if you think about it. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's, it's often, I mean, unless you're really a thin person, doing a cervical esophagoscopy, I think, can be hard, and I think closing them can be even harder at times. So, so I don't, and you're, and, and you're leaving somebody with a spit fistula for a long time. So often, in diverting somebody who's not dying, if I'm going to do that, I'll, I'll just, I would just put a tube, just, you can just, under anesthesia, just put your hand in the back of the pharynx and sort of being careful to avoid blood vessels and I'll make a little incision and, and put a tube down, uh, a pharyngostomy tube, if you will. To, to, to divert saliva and, and whatnot, but with those patients, I still find that that unless they're dying, that that even if they're sick, that operating on them is the, the best approach, because you you need to drain the mediastinitis, you need to drain. Often these patients need a decortication because they have they have a, a chest full of pus, they've got rind, uh, you know, and a, a pleural adhesions that are that are bacterial laden. You need to free all that up, and then with with the thoracic wounds. I I don't know that I described it, but but years ago I'm not claiming primacy. I guess is my point. But 
I described a technique of using diaphragm flaps, and I've reported on a fairly large series of those. In the diaphragm, you can get you can get a good diaphragm flap up to at least the middle of the esophagus, and uh, I've never had any trouble with doing that. I've never had any problems with with the diaphragm, and and there's all kinds of situations other than trauma. Um, you know where where, the, where that technique will will come in handy, and uh, again, just use an onlay. Uh, you don't if if it's if it's old, you're not going to get it closed, and any attempt to close is just going to make the hole bigger because the tissue's friable and will tear through. So just using an onlay diaphragm flap, and then putting either an NG tube down or, or whatnot would be the way I would do. I've probably done three or four cervical esophagostomies in my life. And it's interesting, a couple of those have had horrible problems with, with, with gastric acid and, and one developed a gastric ulcer because we forget about sometimes if you totally divert the saliva, uh, you've got acid rip-roaring down there that needs a buffering agent, of which saliva does. So, you know, you, you buy a whole set of other problems in addition to the technical ones I mentioned. Uh, so, you know, it's. I mean, for a patient who's dying, I think that's the right approach. But uh, for 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 somebody who's not, in 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 what I what I find interesting is if you get in if you get into the chest, it's an awful mess. You think you look like a bomb went off, and you think, holy God, how am I ever can't find the hole? I can't find. I can't recognize anything. It's anatomic here. But but for example, especially in a, in a Borhov's case, which I've done probably fifty of those in my career, I'm sure. If you if you store in the same would apply to any kind of a leak. If you start high away from the the area of leak, or or if the leak happened to be high, start low, get away from it, encircle the esophagus, just gently begin to 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 manipulate the esophagus. Uh, you usually can can get can find the hole, and then can put some kind of an overlay patch on it. Uh, Hermes Grillo, who is a Famous surgeon at, uh, in Boston would have used a, 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 a plural flap for a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. And once you've got some some in, inflammation, the plural will thicken up really fairly well. What I the other thing people write about, which I've always found unsatisfactory, has been a uh, an intercostal muscle flap. But those are there's so little meat there to me. I mean, you know, if you think about eating the spare rib, I mean, there's not a lot of meat on it. So, so I've never, I, I prefer the diaphragm or the pleura to try to close over things. And, and it's amazing to me once you get closed. Oh, now I understand people, it's hard to get that experience to do that, but, but I think that's a better approach. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I've tried to develop intercostal flaps uh, both before I get into the chest and when I'm into the chest already to flip up there. And, and I've come up with like, Little shriveled up strips of, uh, little strips of muscle. <laughs> what God's name am I trying to do? I used to have this thing like so, in, so inflate us to moonbeams, you know. You, I mean, there's just not a lot there. So, so I, yeah. I, I never do that. I just, yeah. I just over that quickly. And then some, I can't remember where I was recently, uh, and they discussed a case of a, an esophageal injury that the, they kind of poo-pooed the pleural flaps. And that's what uh, that I'd been trained and I've relied on most of the time. I haven't done one of the diaphragm flaps that I have seen you would describe, but uh, the pleural flaps have worked fairly um, 
good, you know. I always get some little bit of a leak. I've not had one of the thora- – I've had a uh, upper thoracic knot leak, but the lowers always seem to have a small little leak that's contained with a drain that will heal up over several-week period of time. But um, So it sounds like you're still uh, promoting the pleural flaps. Yeah, no, I think – I think if, if in in a, in a in a very fresh situation, the pearl is usually like tissue paper. But but once you've had a, a you know if you're if you're more than six or eight hours into it, I often find the pearl is, is very thick and and really fairly substantial, several millimeters thick. Again, you've got to be able to develop that. I think sometimes you don't have quite as much leeway in terms of just just getting it getting it developed out to the to the wound, but but I think I think pleural once it thickens up actually works very well. I just don't think the intercostal muscles are good, and it's what people write about so much. But I've actually worked with a couple of thoracic colleagues in, in around who who occasionally call me because they don't you know they just don't do as much of this, and and they'll they'll have this pleural flap and it's just like it's just it's it's that's a wisp. <laughs> I mean, Holy God! You think you're going to do anything with that? So, so I think you need something substantial if you're going to make it work. The other, the other point you made, Roxy, that I think is important, is that if you can get something viable around and really cover it, then then the fact that you may have a little leak doesn't really may may not really matter. Most of those things then will heal and whatnot. What you don't want to do, I think, is first of all, you don't want to start suturing something that that that's that's clearly friable because that's just going to tear through and make your hole worse. Uh, secondly, you don't, I think, that I've seen people try to do is you, you try to approximate an edge of a flap to an edge of a wound. That's not right either because that may not hold us. So what you really want to do is to do an onlay that's well over the, 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 uh, the wound itself so that you have viable tissue that totally covers it and I just pack that around uh, with with some suture to try to really hold it hold it in place. And if it leaks a little bit, you know, if you've got good drainage, uh, those things will still, most of the time, I think, not result in a stricture. Uh, I think I think undrained things and, and 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 failure to do things often will stricture that. Even because if the esophagus has got to heal, it's going to heal by scarring, and and then you're then that's a a really desperate situation later. Not careful. Just a question for you, because as I'm sitting here ruminating about cases that I've had and things like that, you know, when I get a, a fistula from the small bowel or from the colon and things like that, not as many of those heal without intervention as does esophageal leaks. And is it better that we're just able to control the output and they heal, or is there something about the surrounding structures? Because I just sit and wait on an esophagus, and it'll eventually heal. Um, mm-hmm. As you said, sometimes infrequently you'll get a stricture, but most of, just give it time. They they will spontaneously heal, unlike some of the other fistulas we, we get. I, I wonder. I, I agree. I mean, I think your observations are spot on. You know, you get you get a leak in the small bowel, and whether it's I, I don't know what it is. You would think, in a way, that having the positive pressure of the abdomen would help you, as opposed 
in the esophagus, you have a lot of negative, you know, a lot of negative mm-hmm. intrathoracic pressure. You would think that that would, if it was something like that, but I, I don't know. I think, I think, I think you've got to, I think part of it is in the chest, stuff tends to, to cover it, whether it's becomes mediastinum or lung or whatever, uh, it does tend to sock, sock in and sort of close it off. But often that's not, you, you don't want you don't want the lung doing that because unless you want to lose the pulmonary <laughs> function of the whole lobe, so you know you yeah. prefer that. That's why I think the surgical approach is is better. Yeah, it sounds like you know less is more. You want to do the simplest thing that works. But in terms of um, the more aggressive operations, like outside of say maybe uh, injuries due to caustic congestion, is there ever an indication for esophagectomy for trauma? I hate to say we just did one this week. Or last week, uh, we had a patient, uh, um, crush injury that, um, five days into his stay had an upper GI bleed and when we did endoscopy on him, he had, uh, basically ischemic, uh, two thirds of his distal esophagus. Worse at the EG junction and, uh, coming up proximal, his proximal third was the only thing that was in was perfused and, and you know, he perforated and uh, developed sepsis. So we went in and did a esophagectomy, and we actually did do had, did do a uh, a uh, cervical esophagectomy. True. Were you able? Did you even attempt to put him back together with some stomach or anything, or just just let it sit? No, he was just uh, you know, he inflammed. was sick. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. So, so we stapled a, stapled so him off at the EG junction. Uh, put in a G tube uh, and then brought his proximal out, uh, kind of onto the the classic, onto the tunneled it up over the uh, um, clavicle and then brought it out more on his chest where it was a little flatter to mm-hmm. be able to pouch it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, those are I mean, you you occasionally see devastating things, you know, where you've got to resect the esophagus. We had. We had a prisoner here a couple of years ago who who was complaining of being cold. Uh, he obviously had a strategy in mind, so he, he he got permission to bring in those those little heater things where you crush the bag and it heats things up. The hand warmer, chemical hand warmers. So he he managed to get his open and swallow it, and so he his esophagus was dead from you know from close to. Uh, cervical, the whole thoracic esophagus, and 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 most of his stomach actually. So so you'll see those kinds of things. We ended up eventually reconstructing him with with a with a jejunal uh, jejunal pedicle uh, flap that we used microsurgery. I mean, I brought the flap up, the microsurgeon sewed the sewed the vessels in, and um, huh. it got him out of prison <laughs> after about six months in the hospital. Uh, my my general rule, though, is I'll hear people talk about esophagectomies for for variety of, of things. And to me, though, unless you're talking about something, as the case that Dr. Albright mentioned or that I mentioned, where the esophagus is dead, I mean, if the esophagus is normal going in, then I, I try my best not to ever do an esophagectomy. So in which cases would you do that? Perforated cancer, uh, you know, somebody... Decides to be aggressive with an EUS, you know, for someone that's got a cancer of the esophagus. I've had a half a dozen of those I've operated on and done emergency esophagectomies. Our, we've, our people love to stage them with EUS. 
and then they'll perforate them. And, of course, it's always in the middle of the night. <laughs> That's not a surgical oncology operation. That becomes an emergency surgery because it's in the middle of the night. So um, so in that case, you, I think you, you resect the esophagus. You try to put them back together if you can, as you would in an elective case. Uh, and patients with horrible strictures, say, where you perforate a stricture, that's never going to heal right. I mean, you've already got scar, so you, you try to sew it up or do something else, and you now create more scar. But but if the esophagus is normal and, and not dead, then I usually find that using some combination of, of flaps or, or, or other things that you often can preserve the esophagus, which I think you want to do. I think my big takeaway from everything Dr. Richardson has said uh, is the biggest one is to flap these things, not to not try to sew what won't won't come together, and use something to then do an onlay or cover it. Uh, and I think that's a great teaching point to to come out of this podcast. So, in terms of um, complications, we touched on a little bit briefly earlier. Um, we know that close to 25 to 30% of these patients will continue to have leaks postoperatively, unfortunately, despite the procedure used. And like you said, most can be managed non-operatively. Is there anything beyond drainage and feeding access, IV antibiotics, you know, draining the mediastinal contamination, anything else that would we should include in management or just sit and wait? I sit and wait. Uh, we do have a um, interventional uh gastroenterologist here who has stented some of our tumors and things like that, but we just have not, you know, the acute uh, perforations, whether that be from instrumentation, you know, dilating uh, somebody with uh, achalasia or trying to work up a cancer, things like that. Um, it's never, the, the correct person is not on call at the time we're in it or or place when it occurs. So we don't use that many stents, but it is in the literature that uh, there are perforations that are amenable to, to stenting, whether they be covered or uncovered. You just have to know that the uncovered will uh, migrate uh, frequently on you and be diligent at uh, monitoring those patients. If you look at the literature on stents uh, and the experiences of, of people who've had them for, for acute situations, I'd, 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 I've never done one personally. We have, I have some colleagues who have, uh, surgical colleagues uh, and, uh, and whatnot. In terms of, of, of management of leaks after esophagectomy or, or, or something else later, uh, if you've got something that's just uncontrolled, wide open, blowing, you know, any contrast you put down and that kind of thing, then I, I think I think it makes sense. There, it's it's like I've talked about cervical esophagostomy, though it's a disease into itself. They migrate, they cause they can cause horrible reflux problems because you totally ablate any sphincter mechanism that you had. Uh, they clog up, have to be replaced. Uh, so so they're not I mean they're not perfect, but but I mean I think it's like something else. It's a tool. The, the problem I have with them is that the, often the people who use them don't fundamentally know much about what the what they're doing. I mean, uh, I mean, GI doctors just don't know anything about this. They may be able to put a stent down, but they don't know about mediastinitis. They don't know about uh, empyema, and so 
so if you look at 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 uh, at the literature uh and in the places that that have been pretty aggressive about using these at least a third to half of the people will end up needing a thoracoscopic decortication or something anyway uh sometimes they need an open thing but often the mindset is well we want to avoid an operation at all costs as opposed to doing things that in my view really right and uh, and so um, it's it's very interesting if you look at the literature x number of the you know, we've done 20 of these cases five had to have a stent replaced you know 10 had to have a subsequent uh, thoracotomy or thoracoscopy most commonly for empyema and 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 whatnot yeah, I think I think that's an important point because the, some of the papers that I've read, you know, they forget about that second step. That second step is that yeah, you can stent the leak, but if it was not a contained leak, then you should early go in and do something thoroscopically and place some drains around there uh, to control the or to decrease the risk of empyema and going in there when it's a really like a bomb has gone off. Yeah, I agree. We've had a couple of cases where, you know, the long-term outcome has been disappointing. Like you said, it was due to iatrogenic injuries from endoscopic instrumentation, dilatation that we thoracoscopically drained, decorticated initially, and then stented. But, yeah, in a non-structured lumen, they, they tend to migrate and erode, and, you know, there's a lot of technical and clinical failure, you know, symptomatic yeah. failure. Yeah, I, I also think you, you have to sort it by the location and indication. So, so I think I think stents have a much better success rate for distal esophagus, intra-abdominal esophagus, you know, where you're going to have drainage. Uh, we've, we've done it for several of those. Those are usually, you know, iatrogenic injuries or injury from a Nissen or something. Um, and the stents have worked pretty well in that location. And, and I agree with everything that's been said already about stents for thoracic esophagus. In, in some of these really distal things, uh, I mean, you don't see there's such a short segment of intradominal esophagus that that trauma, uh, boy, that, that's pretty unusual. I mean, I've seen I've seen a few gunshot wounds that that have you know gotten that area, and I've seen some devastating ones. But I've seen a few that were amenable to to repair. Uh, but there, I would buttress it with a Nissen, or or, a, or you could do a door or a or a toupee or some other type of thing, depending on where the injury is. You know, just put a, but but use the stomach. So to me, I always want to cover it with something on the stomach, you know, pleura if, it, if it's robust enough, diaphragm which I've had great luck with, SCM in the neck, and uh, and whatnot. But uh, uh, it's, I mean, I think the principles that are important for for people who who are going to call themselves acute care surgeon really do that. Is it, is it what you're going to really see are a bunch of what I call one-offs. You know, they're not there. There's somebody sticks their finger in, in the back back wall of the esophagus, you know, or 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 doing a lap and they realize that they that they you know got something and whatnot. And we there are some people in around. They're fortunate they're not our people, but who who are, think they're pretty good, or maybe they are good at doing laparoscopic nissens, but once they have a problem, they they don't really know quite how to manage that with an open incision and and you know trying to sew up the back wall of the esophagus. If you if you put your finger through it or or a grain through it or 
or or the dissector through it doing a lap lap operation. Um, you know, that's a little hard to get to. And so I think the principle to me that's really important is is buttress things is, is I think is a very important concept that I think often gets ignored and and, and I think a lot of the people frankly that I don't mean to sound bad about this, but I think a lot of the people who write about the esophagus, I don't they may do a lot of elective surgery, but I don't think they have dealt with very many emergencies and that kind of thing because it's it's a, it's a little bit different at, at times in terms of the way you manage it because you can't just sew things up. Yeah, yeah they haven't dealt with the complications of the people who do the elective ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stuffing stuff up the hole just to I mean, get uh, something to stick up there to heal. Uh, you probably have the same situation, but virtually, I am fascinated in our situation now. That virtually every complication that anybody has gets transferred to somebody else. It's it's fascinating to me the way that that has gone, and how that some. I mean, I don't think that's bad necessarily, but it does. It it it, it creates real problems for a referral institution. I think. Uh, yeah, for for the safety nets who yeah. have um, you know, it's I'm not comfortable with that, and yep. <laughs> and okay, sure. Uh, <laughs> I haven't done that operation, but I know how to take care of the complications of it. Yeah, and certainly uh, introduces delay in intervention as we discussed earlier. It makes makes the situation worse when you know it, it's there's an attempt at management and then the patient gets transferred over and a lot sicker, dire straits. Any uh, final thoughts from anybody? No, I think that you did a great job leading the discussion for us. Thank you very much. Yes, thank absolutely. you all. Absolutely. Really delighted to have you on. Thank you so much. You're welcome back anytime. Great. Thank you, and, and uh, good luck to all. Yeah. yeah, thanks, guys. That was a great discussion. All right. Thanks, Thank man. you. Thanks, all. That wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the ECU Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. Make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any more exciting programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking, and building relationships, career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East. Mm-hmm.